Tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell and I'm Tortoise's deputy editor. It's the week beginning Monday the 22nd of January from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Stormisha has finally arrived. Gusts of at least 90 miles per hour have been recorded. Two Madonna fans are suing the American singer for being late by more than two hours for a show last month in New York. Iran accusing Israel of launching an airstrike in Syria today that killed at least four Iranian military advisors. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is dropping out of the Republican presidential primary race. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. I am recently back from Davos, where I spent most of last week and have now swapped the Alps for Storm Isha, which was truly terrifying, almost as terrifying as the plutocracy in force um, in Davos. To help me back into the news cycle, I'm joined by Tortoise's political editor, Kat Nealon, and climate editor, Jeevan Varsagar. Hello. Hello. Hi, Giles. And I'm also joined by the Labour MP for Hodge Hill in Birmingham. Hello, Liam Byrne. Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Liam and Kat, you know each other already because you worked on the latest Tortoise series, Eight Years Hard Labour, which tracked the party's journey from Corbyn to Starmer's election. Was that fun? Uh, it's like free therapy, Kat. It was uh, <laughs> for me. Uh, it was interesting getting your take on it, um, kind of the overview of that whole period, because the sort of life in the trenches for a lot of Labour MPs has been quite tough, I think. I wish I could say it was cathartic. It was just painful. (laughs) Liam, you're also the author of a new book, The Inequality of Wealth, Why It Matters and How to Fix It. So an optimistic component to the subtitle. What do you make, Liam, um, of the end of the wealth spectrum that is on such conspicuous display still after all these years at Davos? Well, it's definitely getting more and more conspicuous, isn't it? And some of the um, analysis we put out during Davos week shows that it's um, acquiring a trajectory now of its own. So the top 1% globally are going to multiply their wealth, we think, by about 91 times more than everybody else over the next four or five years. What are the main accelerators of that uh, inequality in the UK? Because unless I'm mistaken, until recently... Um, wealth inequality was not actually increasing that fast. Is that correct? That's right. So the wealth of our nation today is about £12 trillion. That's enough to buy a path of five gold bars from John O'Groats to Land's End, that standard unit of British measurement. Um, But for most of my life, since 1970, that, uh, that wealth inequality was going down. Since 2010, it's been going up. So since 2010, top 1%, multiplied their wealth 31 times more than everybody else. And there's a, there's a number of reasons for that. So the way our economy runs basically created quite a lot of um, uh, inequality. But also, of course, we've had £850 billion pounds of quantitative easing that has gone in, which have helped keep interest rates super low. That's great news if you own assets like a house or shares. Um, and then just to kind of twist the tail of it all, if you get your income from investments, 
you pay about half the rate of tax of everybody else. Now, if you put those three things together, lo and behold, what you get is radically accelerating wealth inequality and the kind of divisions that you see in Britain today, which are now only going to get much worse as the baby boomers die. They're going to bequeath about five and a half trillion to their heirs. And some people will inherit fortunes and some people will inherit um, debts, basically. So um, as unequal as things are today, um, it's about to get much worse unless we do something about it. And just before we started, Jeevan tried to brand me a boomer. And let me assure you, in that respect, at any rate, I am no boomer. Let's start with long stories short. In this part, uh, in a single sentence, I'm going to ask you, or just a few words, to tell us what your story is about. Kat, you go first. Mine is a rash decision. A rash decision. Kat, you are famous for the cryptic quality of your long story short, so... Because I play the game by the rules. Yeah, very competitive. Liam, in a phrase... Is climate security hurting our economic security? A question, which, as you would know if you were a journalist, is a controversial headline. Uh, Jeevan? Uh, My long story short is... WFH, WTF. That's even more cryptic. Yeah. This is why I'm not allowed to write headlines. <laughs> with a little training, we'll let you. Right, Liam, let's start with you and the job losses at Patalbot Steelworks. So, devastating news uh, for lots and lots of people last week with the announcement by Tata they're going to shut down the big Tata Steelworks and end what's been a tradition in this country stretching back centuries of making virgin steel. Um, so what we've got here is 2,800 people about to lose their jobs. So there is, uh, you know, there's a real human st- story at the heart of this, which is, you know, having gone through all of the shutdowns of coal and steel under Mrs. Thatcher, you know, we've now learned a lot about what happens to communities when big employers like this get shut down. That is now the fate, we think, of Port Albert Steelworks. Um, but a lot of the debate about it has been framed in terms of, well, is it our net zero targets that are somehow responsible for this? Um, it's actually quite hard to see how that might be the case, because, of course, the real issue at the heart of this is the fact that electricity is just so much more expensive in this country than it is in, say, Germany or indeed um, in China. But the, the economic security question that looms over this is, if this goes through, if this closure goes through, we'll be the only G20 country that has lost all capacity to make virgin steel. And is we've got to ask ourselves, is, is that a vulnerability that we want in today's geopolitical environment. So there's, there's there's an awful lot of issues that kind of come together here. And one of the debates that I think we're going to have probably tomorrow in the House of Commons is whether the government has got its strategy on this right. Um, it's proposing to put in about 40% of the money to shift steelmaking onto what are called electric arc furnaces, which are all about basically melting down recycled steel. And um, it's not quite the same stuff. Um, that's about 500 million. So has the government got the investment right? Is it spending money on the right thing? And could it be doing something differently to actually protect our economic security in the future? So there's an awful lot of things that kind of come together in this big debate. But at the heart of it is a community that is just, well, in the words of one person, going to going to be completely smashed to bits by, um, you know, by this decision from Tartus. So as you say, there's that human story. But on the sort of economic management end, do you buy the view that virgin steel production is a strategic asset asset, and that there is something intrinsically, there would be tr- something intrinsically wrong slash dangerous to be the only G7 country without that capacity. 
So I think it is risky, not least because we don't have the kind of agreements in place that might safeguard its supply um, if something bad happens in the future. So I think what we learn from COVID is that when supply chains get disrupted, national interest trumps uh, the interests of um, your neighbours. And so those countries, you know, in Europe or indeed in America that are going to carry on um, maintaining this capability are more likely to just make sure they look after themselves in times of crisis rather than worry about exports to us. So um, it's, it's, it's a question of how economic security now trumps the market. So, you know, for 30 years now, we've driven out all the inefficiency in supply chains, but we've driven out all the resilience too. You know, and what we now know with the return of geopolitical competition is that you can't just now leave everything to the market. You've got to make sure that you've got some sovereign capabilities. And the debate we've got to have is whether virgin steelmaking should be one of them. I think it probably is. Cat, blast furnaces, electric arc furnaces, nearly 3,000 lost jobs. Does this story fire you up? Um, yes, it does. As, as Liam says, you know, it's it's very much about, you know, we have talked a lot about energy security in the, since the start of the Ukraine conflict. Um, the reality on, on the energy side, which, I, you know, is obviously a slightly different issue to, to uh, production of steel, but on the energy side is that there has been sort of years of underinvestment and therefore we aren't in a position where we can transition as seamlessly as we would like to, to some of the renewables, although we are getting obviously a lot more energy from renewables than we ever have done before. In terms of the Tatar story, I would kind of throw it back to, to Liam and just sort of say, you know, but what are what are the solutions that Labour is proposing to this? And are you kind of suggesting perhaps greater subsidies for this kind of um, industry? Or are you talking about nationalisation? Because obviously we have the sort of residual sort of memories of the 2019 nationalise kind of everything strategy, which obviously uh, we all know where that, that ended up. And but, and um, the manifesto's deadline is just going to be announced, right? Labour manifesto is shortly going to be published. Give us a scoop. <laughs> So, so, so happily, I have the freedom of the back bench rather than the front bench. So I don't. I, I can speak for Liam Byrne rather than the Labour Party, um, which is a great freedom. But I think ultimately, um, for issues like this, when you've got questions of uh, economic security on the table, what the country's got to do is come to a conclusion about two things. One, um, do we want that capability? Do we think it's important for our security in the future? I think it probably is when it comes to steel. And then second, how do you put the money in in a way that's good for taxpayers? And this is a debate that we're not really having in Westminster at the moment. So what's going on at the moment is that you hear about a deal here and a deal there. So we've had about 500 million announced for British Steel up in Scunthorpe. Government's announced um, about 500 million for some gigafactories, again, Tartar owned. Uh, we've now got 500 million from the table on the table for the government um, here at Tata Steel, and and what we're not really asking is okay. So, how quickly is that money going in, and and what is the British taxpayer going to get in return? So, are we going to get a share in the business, for example? Is this money going in as debt? Is it going in as equity? Um, and I think from from my point of view, the, the the smartest way to protect and safeguard the taxpayer in these things is to say, well, look. Yes, some extra investment may be needed, um, but in return, 
the British taxpayer's got a right to ask for a stake in the company, not nationalising it, because I don't think the British state should be running steel companies, but making sure that we get a return on that investment in due course when um, the business flourishes, as we hope it will downstream, would be a smarter thing to do. Jeevan, can you just pick up, well, on anything you want to, but this business about decarbonising the economy. I thought that the UK led the G7, if not the G20, if not the world, in taking coal, at any rate, out of our power production system, If and, and, and that our national footprint fell precipitously in the first part of the last decade as a result. If that's true, why are we in this pickle now, just in terms of the sort of carbon intensity of our steelmaking, heavy industry? Um, Giles, I guess one thing I should say in passing is that um, I don't know if I fully buy the economic security argument. Um, it's worth pointing out, you know, as Liam did point out, we will still be able to make steel from scrap. Um, and I'm not convinced, I'm not completely convinced that steel is a strategic commodity in the way that semiconductors are, one that's likely to be put under embargo. Um but yeah, to, to answer your question, I mean, and I think there are kind of there is kind of a problem here that, that Liam is really right to highlight. And I think you know politicians who talk about net zero tend to talk about jobs at the same time. And I think that's the sort of kind of collision that we've got at the heart of this story. Really, the kind of biggest problem, the one that isn't really talked about a lot, is that the green job sector doesn't really seem to be getting any bigger. So, I mean, the, the clearest example was one given by Nestor a couple of years ago, where they talked about how many heat pump engineers there are in the country. There's about 3,000 in the UK, and we need about 27,000 heat pump engineers. But gas engineers don't want to retrain because they're really busy installing gas boilers, and there's not much more money to be made installing heat pumps. Um, so, I mean, and I think the answer to this is to look at the US and to say, you know, the government needs to give, give a clear signal about where industry is going and, and say, you know, here's the legislation will provide the incentives, you know, away you go. And and I think this this government that we have in the UK hasn't really sent a very clear signal. They've kind of moved around a bit on kind of green targets. So I think that's kind of like the core of this problem. Kat, let's move on to your story. Tell us why measles cases are rising and vaccination rates are falling. Yeah, so um, measles rates are rising globally, but um, taking it uh, from a UK perspective and its coincidence that Liam is uh, doing this week's news meeting because it is Birmingham that is uh, sort of at the centre of uh, the UK outbreak. Um, It's been declared a national incident. There have been 216 confirmed and another 103 probable cases in the West Midlands since October. 80% of those are in Birmingham. Um, And this is one of those kind of slow burn stories that um, basically a sort of rise in unvaccinated children is now having the sort of un- the consequences of a a spike in uh, cases. And um, the interesting sort of bits around it being much more infectious even than COVID. Um, so COVID had an R rate, which people might remember as a kind of the reproduction rate of between two and three. Measles is sort of 15, 16, up to 20. So it's much, much more infectious than, than COVID. Um, and people sort of feel unwell for about a week before the rash um, uh, begins to, to show. So they can be out and about spreading it within their community. Um, and then once you get it, it can cause lifelong problems afterwards because it sort of wipes your immune memory for want of a better word so you can then get lots of other illnesses that you might have previously been protected against Um, so it's a really nasty disease and um, 
the reasons why people are not vaccinating their children, which is what this story fundamentally comes down to, are quite varied and difficult to sort of really get to the bottom of. So, yes, there is a, a bit about disinformation and um, the sort of Andrew Wakefield effect. Um, and, you know, for people that want to kind of hear more about that, my colleague Alexi did a brilliant deep dive into uh, Dr. Antivax, as we called him, the, the, the man that sort of wrote a, a widely debunked uh, report about the connection between the MMR vaccine and autism completely, um, uh, you know, I think... Connection that doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But he managed to sow the seeds of doubt sufficiently and gain a, a following, particularly in America, whereby people have been talking about it a lot. And, and um, you know, I, I have friends who who have that kind of concern around it. So so it's it's one of those things that I think is sort of lodged in the back of people's minds, even if they rationally know that it's it's a debunked study. In what was billed as an exclusive in yesterday's Sunday Times, they talk in particular, and we'll ask Liam about this in a second, about a Somali community where uptake is not high enough and where it was pointed out some of the parents can't read in their own language. Yes. And... That's clearly a, prob- a, a practical problem, regardless of any erosion of trust. Yes, yeah, and this was a problem that we found again during during uh, COVID, when um, special efforts had to be made to speak to particular communities, because um, yeah, not all communities obviously speak uh, speak English certainly, or speak languages that many you know medics would would speak as a kind of matter of course, um, but also that there is levels different levels of trust towards the medical community from different communities. So it's not just a case of translating it into different languages. It's a case of actually having to go into the communities and try to sort of re-engage uh, people and, and and persuade them that uh, the, the vaccine and the individuals giving you the vaccine can be trusted. So, Liam, you're from there. What are you being told about the extent of the outbreak? And, and do you think that the NHS and Health Security Agency have enough of a plan? Uh, So we've had about 167 confirmed cases between beginning of October and 12th January. In your Uh, constituency, in Hodge Hill? No, across the the West Mids um, with about another 88 confirmed. So that is, you know, that is a significant number. And as Kat says, the R number for this is, is, is really high. So there's, there's, there's definitely a couple of things going on here. So obviously, most children get their jab as part of the immunisation programme not long after um, a child is born. COVID has basically not the health system for six, though. So a lot of the kind of safeguards and provisions which we had um, have basically not really recovered since the COVID pandemic. And the, the reality is that in parts of inner city Birmingham, the, the primary care system, the GPs, are so thinly spread now that it is practically impossible to see a GP in uh, lots and lots of circumstances. So, of course, what happens is A&Es are now completely overcrowded. We had, I think, the busiest night in Hartlands, which is my local hospital, A&E ever, uh, just before Christmas. Um, So you've you've definitely got a big kind of COVID impact on the immunisation programme. Um, uh, but that is being compounded now by what is a meltdown in the primary care system, which has been kind of degrading for a lot of the last 10 years. But over the last sort of year or two, it's taken a really big setback. So I've got wards in Hodge Hill where 
the inability to get GP appointments is probably the number one issue now. Jeevan, what do you make of the MMR story? It's like a zombie story, isn't it? I, rem- I remember distinctly about 15 years ago being sent off to Paris to get a single measles shot. That's a terrible confession to make. Um, long story, you won't tell it now. Uh, what do you make of it? I mean, I don't have a lot to add beyond violently agreeing with, with Liam and Kat. I think that there's a combination of factors here, aren't there? One of them is the misinformation. Um, another is the lack of investment in the NHS that Liam points to. And I think the third one is, is you know, there is a question of vaccine hesitancy among certain communities and particularly, um, I think particularly amongst the black community, uh, which seems to have a much lower rate of vaccination according to NHS data than the white population. And I think that's possibly, we don't really know why that is, right? it's possibly because of a history of unethical medical experimentation on black people, particularly in the US. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of things to unpick here. It doesn't feel like something that's kind of easy to pull apart, easy to tackle, but, uh, but it feels like a really important, compelling news story. And I just want to add, actually, I think I think Liam's point about not being able to get a GP appointment is really is is sort of underplayed because if you think yourself um, how likely you are to to get, try and get a GP's appointment these days, you know, you, you can't even get on the you can't even get through to the receptionist to, to book an appointment, let alone actually get one. So I think that that puts off a, a, an awful lot of people, even if they were minded to. And um, I think that that is a real kind of that is another issue. It's not it, to say it is just uh, sort of these kind of communities where, um, you know, immigrant communities and what have you. I don't, I don't think it's it's that is not the whole story. That is that is clearly a significant part. And there is a reason why it is in the cities that it is often concentrated. But I think there is kind of this sort of overlaying issue of um what, you know, well, maybe I'll I'll try later or it doesn't have to happen right now because there's this uh, booster jab that's done, a preschool booster jab that's done. And um, I think a lot of, well, maybe not a lot of parents, but I think, I think certainly some parents will think, well, I'll just try again when the GPs are less busy. I think this goes to the trust question because we know that health workers and GPs are trusted people in communities. And if you can't see them, can't hear from them directly, I think that's how misinformation spreads and gets embedded. Mm. Liam, one final practical question on this. Um, is there an you You've uh, both discussed how GPs are supposed to be the first line of defence and it's um, very thin now, especially in the West Midlands. But when in terms of response to an emergency like this, does the NHS, do any of the health agencies have a sort of task force SWAT team capability to go in and, and and deal with a specific problem at a specific time? So basically, no. Um, what, once it kind of gets to DEFCON 1, I mean, people do begin to mobilise. So, um, so our health service was organising calls with MPs, for example, last week. And, you know, that's important because we know our communities best. So, I mean, I remember during the COVID crisis, it took me some time to convince people that we needed to set up vaccination tents in the car parks of mosques, for example. Here you've got to do a combination of stuff that is based at schools, school gates, um, as well as places of worship. But I mean, that's, you know, that's something that would work in the context of my community, which is quite a tight-knit community in a dense inner city place. Um, but but unless, unless you've got that kind of street-level intelligence that is feeding into the kind of solution design, then you can spend a lot of time and money not really getting anywhere. That's beginning to happen now in the West Midlands, I should say. Right. Well, Liam, thanks. Kat, thank you. Uh, Let's take a break and then we'll hear more from Jeevan about WFHWTF. Jeevan, what's your story? 
So Giles, um, this is a story about about home working, and the, the context for this is that home or hybrid working, as we all maybe know, has gone from about you know twelve percent of the labour force pre pandemic um, to about forty four percent now. So it's a that's forty four percent who are doing at least some working from home. exactly at least some. So it's gone to a significantly higher level than it was pre COVID. And the story that I'm pitching relates to a judgment at an employment tribunal that was published last week. Um, it's a case um, of a manager at the Financial Conduct Authority whose name is Elizabeth Wilson. Um, and Miss Wilson made a request um, to her employer. She was a, a, apparently a terrific employee, uh, did really well at appraisals. She made a request to work from home full time, uh, which the FCA refused. And the judge in this tribunal found that the FCA was right to identify, in his words, quote, weaknesses with remote working. And he said that technology is not well suited to a fast interplay of exchanges which may occur in some meetings. And he also said it's not well suited to nonverbal communication. And the example that was given in the tribunal hearing uh, was of seeing a colleague with their head in their hands. Um, I should say at this point that I see Giles with his head in his hands every day. Um, <laughs> I never know quite what to do about it. It's usually when you've just received my copy, I think, Giles. Um, but I think, I think the sort of interesting thing about this story is that it raises kind of... Um, it raises sort of a couple of different issues. And I think, I think you know, one question to ask here is kind of why do employees want it? It's often seen as a perk of some jobs, seen as something very desirable. And I think the really obvious answer is to do with pressures on childcare. But I think there's a subtler story. And I think it connects to the inequality story that um, Liam was talking about right at the beginning uh, of this show. Um, and, and that's to do with housing and the way that housing costs have pushed people out of London in particular. And that's especially the case for people on lower incomes who've been pushed out of the core of London. Now, we know that the people on the very lowest incomes don't tend to have a choice about this. You know, if you clean an office, you have to commute in from you know the suburbs of London into the city of London. But the housing crisis, I think, is now so deep in this country that it's biting to the middle classes too. And that's creating a big demand for remote working. I agree with you. You're dialing in from Oxford. Uh, you, I, I'm, I'm method acting, Giles, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from reading about this over the weekend, it seemed as if the judge was making a fairly subjective assessment of the merits of being in the office. Or did I miss a reference to some uh, solid academic research that backs him up? Yeah, I mean, it, it did feel to me, I mean, it should, it's worth pointing out, actually, that this employment tribunal was conducted entirely remotely. <laughs> so there is perhaps, a you know, a question on appeal for, for Ms. Wilson to say, you know, is the judge completely qualified to make this assessment? <laughs> is he hoist by his own petard? Liam, in your line of work in the House of Commons, yeah. um, is everybody basically showing up now? Or is this still a live issue, not, not as legislators, but as a sort of for you and your colleagues? Yeah, so as MPs, um, we're really undigital. So we still have to wander through a lobby uh, on either side of the Commons Chamber. Um, and, you know, there have been lots of debates about whether you just, you know, return to electronic voting. The, the truth is that making people walk through a lobby is sensible because you get more business done in the lobby. It gives you the chance to talk to colleagues, square things up, talk to ministers um, if you're on the government side. I have to say, when you've got, we've had a few bills already this year where I think one night a couple of weeks ago we were doing 11 votes. And so, you know, by vote 11, um, we were kind of asking ourselves whether this was the best use of time to have spent 90 minutes basically walking around in circles. And so there, you know, there is definitely a balance to be struck here. When it comes to staff, though, I think Chiefen's got a really interesting point here because if you put what what people want to be able to try and do is to organise work around life rather than life around work. And when you've got very high housing costs, when you've got public transport systems, which are pretty much non-existent, um, 
congestion that is terrible and you've got childcare systems which are non-existent too um, then then you know lots of people do need the ability to to work at home I, one of my staff was asked to work at home one day a week you know this week um because it takes him an hour to drive into the office you know which you know he only lives about six miles away from the office in Hochil, but you know that's an hour there an hour back i mean it's it's, it's crazy for him to spend all that mm-hmm. time commuting cat what do you think about the non-verbal cues that are sort of at the heart of the judge's argument here that you get them when you're in the office and you don't when you're at home how important is that so I'll caveat this by saying that I very much enjoy, as a working mother of two, um, having the opportunity to work from home on Friday because it allows me to ferry them around for their classes on a Friday evening. But leaving that aside, um, I really I think it's so important to have uh, in-person interaction. Um, I think it's important for, for younger people as much as it is for older people because it, I mean, I'm not a manager. It must be so difficult to manage people um, remotely. And I do remember um, in the sort of dark days of lockdown, um, it, it all felt very transactional. The only time you'd ever speak to someone from your team was when they wanted something done. And that was basically it. And you'd do it and you'd say, right, it's done. And that was it. And it, and you lost the sort of joy of, and I'm going to sound like a Telegraph columnist now, but you lost some of the joy of, of interaction at work and the spontaneous like a human the joy the, of sidling over the spontaneous interactions the stealing of biscotti the the pub after work where you can slag off your boss and say isn't Giles awful yeah he, he's he, never there, yeah. he moaned at me this morning as well it's okay and that's it's really important it's it's really important when you're sort of at the formative stage of of your working life to know that it gets better or you're not the only one that got shouted at that, that morning or whatever um, and also to just see more experienced colleagues working and it's important for the boomers like yourself Giles to keep up to date with the the youth speak and um, and to, to keep your finger on the pulse hard agree <laughs> as they say do they, do they say that hard agree anyway look thanks everyone um, <laughs> Those are the stories. Now we have to work out uh, which one leads the news. This is the part where I ask each of you to say which one you would have lead the news and you cannot pick your own story. So, Liam, we'll start with you. That's really hard. That's really hard. I'm going to have to go with measles, though, just because it's such a big West Midlands story right now. Uh, And uh, I'm still old enough to think that all politics is local. So I'm going to go with measles. Jeevan? I think Tata Steel is the story I find really compelling because of that that conflict between our climate goals and our economic ones. And it is is not an easy conflict to resolve and we can't just sort of wish it away. And Kat? Yes, I agree. I think I think Tata is the most important one. And I think um, that that distinction, it doesn't necessarily need to be a conflict, but it is currently positioned as one. Um, between economic and uh, climate security is going to run and run throughout the election campaign. Great. Thank you all very much. And this is where I have to decide what I think would lead the news. And first of all, thank you and reassurance to all of you. All your stories make it. (laughs) None's being spiked. I do think they're all fascinating and they all satisfy two really important criteria which is they are news, they are timely, uh, and there's a lot to unpack in all of them. However, I am going to put below the fold, as it were, 
the steel story whose details and outcome remain to be decided, the working from home story, which I agree is fascinating uh, because it affects us all and because we, we still don't know the extent to which the judge is ruling on this is going to form formal or informal precedent. But actually, I want to lead with the measles story because it has legs in the most awful way. Uh, if you look at the, the numbers, it's liable to go up before it goes down. There is no obvious, concerted, coherent response from the NHS or other health agencies. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a horrible zombie quality to it. This should have been knocked on the head more than a decade ago when Andrew Wakefield was comprehensively, comprehensively discredited. That was the, the origin story of the misinformation around the MMR. But it wasn't. He went to the States, and, and that's an object lesson in how uh, bad information, false information, can just stay in the system and come back and put people's lives at risk. Uh, so that is my uh, decision. The MMR measles story, the outbreak in the West Midlands, leads the news. That's it for this episode of the news meeting. Kat and Jeevan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Liam Byrne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was great. If you want to hear more from Liam on Tortoise's podcasts, search for Eight Years Hard Labour wherever you get your podcasts and do read his new book, The Inequality of Wealth. I'll be back on Friday with another episode of the news meeting, which we're recording in front of an audience in our newsroom on Wednesday evening with the journalist and author Jane Martinson. To book your ticket, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. Tortoise.